The occluded discusses death, mayhem, and the places better left unexplored. Listener discretion is advised. If you're having suicidal thoughts or thoughts about hurting others, please reach out for help. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or your local mental health provider. You're not alone, and help is always available. And now, dim the lights, free your mind, and open your eyes. It's cold. So cold. Flesh grows brittle beneath the frigid moon's silver light. Darkness. Inky jet abyss clings like tar to the glacial surface of the walls. The rough, cotton shirt might have once provided some semblance of warmth and comfort, but that was so long ago. What does the sun look like? How does it feel against the skin? A hand reaches out into the moonlight to the rough, wooden walls. Fingers test the texture of the nearest plank, dance along the rough surface until they find the splinter. Shuddering spasms rack your body, force the hand back to your chest as you make yourself as small as possible. Please. Minutes pass. The air burns your lungs with each inhalation. You focus on the sun. Pretend the cold is actually heat. That pain searing the skin isn't frost. It's a sunburn. Like so much of your life, you hold on. It passes. The fingers plunge back into the moonlight. They trace the wood like braille, searching for the splinter they'd settled on a few minutes ago. It fits between the thumb and the finger, as if it was destined to be there since it had been formed. Wiggle. Wiggle. You're not sure you even managed to move it. You lost your feelings in your hands hours ago. You try again, straining as you test the wood's strength. A moment passes, then another. The splinter snaps like the crack of a gun as it breaks free. You pull it into the shadows and study the thing. It's a totem. It's a weapon. It's a key and the lock. Your thumb wriggles its way up the splinter and rubs the rough, hewn tip. You consider it for a moment longer before you press down. The calloused pad resists, then yields to the gouge. The pain hurts, but not as much as the cold. Blood wells up, red clay dull and molasses thick. The thumb goes to the soft flesh of your cheek. You can't see the scarlet it leaves, but you can feel its warmth in the bitter frost. It feels good. It feels like life. You draw your hands back to your body, making sure to keep the splinter in hand. You'll save it for her when she comes to let you out. 
she'll get more than she bargained for. And if she doesn't come, you sense the length in your hand. If you're lucky, it's long enough to be lethal should it come down to it. You slide down the wall, pull yourself up to stay as warm as you can. The light from the crescent-shaped hole in the outhouse door highlights your face with the moon's pale glow. It's cold. So cold. My name is Mark Blyle, and this is The Occluded. Amos Humiston was a family man. He had a wife and three children at home who loved him very much. The five of them shared a home in Oswego, New York, and were happy with each other. He was a good man and husband, but Amos Humiston was also a soldier. He enlisted in the Union Army and traveled south to meet the Confederate advance. Amos was no hero, but he had a kind heart and his thoughts were never too far from the family he'd left behind in New York. He would write often, sometimes poetry, like this snippet of verse from the early spring of 1863. I am very sad tonight, dear wife. My thoughts are dwelling on home in thee, as I keep the lone night watch beneath the holly tree. Other times, Amos would write letters and exchange them with the woman he loved, In one of these letters from home, his wife included an Ambro-type photograph of his three children. He wrote her back on May 9th, 1863. I got the likeness of the children, and it pleased me more than anything you could have sent me. How I want to see them and their mother is more than I can tell. I hope that we may live to see each other again if this war does not last too long. In less than two months after sending that letter... Amos Humiston would be dead in the streets of Gettysburg. Amos served in the 154th New York Infantry Regiment as a sergeant. He'd seen action before, and had even been injured during a previous fight. As his regiment moved into Gettysburg, could he have known what hells awaited him so far from home? Could he feel it nagging at him like a ghost from the veil? After the armies had left, and the wounded had imprisoned to Sindhu... A young girl born to a local bartender found Amos's body in a secluded spot in town. He had nothing personal to identify him, but he was clutching something in his hand. The photograph of his three children, as Amos lay dying, as the gunfire and cannon shattered the summer sky, as the world ended around him. He'd had only one thought. He'd pulled out the photograph to gaze one last time upon his love and his life. It was the last comfort to a dying, nameless man. The girl took the photo from the dead man's hand and brought it to her father's tavern, where it quickly became the topic of conversation every night. One evening, a man named Dr. John F. Bournes stopped in and heard the story. He found himself so moved that he begged for the photograph so he could publicize it, and see it return to the family it depicted. Dr. Bournes had several photographers copy the amber type and print hundreds of inexpensive duplications. He pinned a letter and began sending the photograph to major papers on the East Coast. The story quickly became a national obsession. 
Who was this mystery soldier, this loving father? His efforts were eventually rewarded. Several months later, he received a letter from a woman named Felinda Humiston. She confirmed it was her Amos who had carried that photo, and she hadn't heard from him since Gettysburg. The same day, President Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address. Papers around the country printed Amos's name for the first time. A man who had almost been lost to history found a strange afterlife. On January 2nd, 1864, Dr. Bournes traveled to New York to return the photograph to Felinda. He met the widow and her fatherless children and noted, quote, her hands shook like an aspen leaf, but by a strong effort she retained her composure. He left the meeting forever changed. On the north foot of Cemetery Hill, Dr. Bournes began to break ground on a new facility in Gettysburg, meant to be an orphanage and widow's home. He planned to call it the National Homestead at Gettysburg, a place for those who had lost everything to the Civil War. Dr. Bournes helped to form a group called the National Association of Philadelphia, which would fund and manage the new home. Three years later, in October of 1866, the National Homestead opened its doors. It was a wonderful place full of hope and new beginnings. But the National Association of Philadelphia knew that it would need a strong, organized matron to help care for the orphans there. Dr. Bournes could think of no other candidate than Philinda Humiston. The governing body invited her to come to Gettysburg and raise the children there. And Felinda accepted. She was a natural fit. Under her care, the children flourished. They were well-clothed, well-fed, and educated. They were also well-loved. Felinda took in 60 orphans and had an additional building constructed on the property. And for a while, they thrived. Felinda served as matron until 1869 when she remarried and moved to Massachusetts with her children. The National Association of Philadelphia knew a new matron was needed, so they settled on a teacher named Rosa Carmichael. She was a woman of good reputation who they thought would be a good caretaker to the young lives housed within the homestead. The association gave Carmichael the ultimate say on who would be allowed on the grounds of the homestead, and with that stroke of a pen, Rosa Carmichael began her cruel reign of terror. By 1875, it was clear something terrible was happening within the homestead. People in town began to notice the educational decline of the children, how their uniforms began to wear thin and ragged in the cold winter months, how doctors' calls to the orphanage began to increase. When a 19-year-old boy missing part of his left arm appeared in a neighboring town with his stories of abused orphans, word made it back to Gettysburg quickly. An incensed Veterans Association dragged Rosa Carmichael to court and charged her with cruelty to children. She was found guilty, ordered to pay a $20 fine, and told to leave town. She refused to do either, and returned to the orphanage unchastened. Townsfolk clamored for access to the children, but Carmichael refused to grant it. On Memorial Day 1876, the situation finally came to a head when the townspeople arrived at the orphanage. They expected the children to lead them to the graves of those killed in the fighting so they could adorn them with flowers. 
Rosa Carmichael refused to allow the orphans to be seen. Instead, they were locked in the house and forced to watch as children from town place the flowers on their soldiers' graves. Some of the orphans were denied the ability to put the flowers on their own father's markers. On Christmas Eve, two men walking past the orphanage heard a small sound on the wind. It was a voice. They stopped and listened intently to the tiny screams. They entered the grounds of the orphanage without permission and followed the cries to a locked outhouse. Inside, a small boy, no older than four or five, was begging to God to be freed. When they finally got the door open, they saw a small, malnourished creature nearly frozen to death in the Pennsylvania winter. It was the last straw. A new investigation was launched. Carmichael was arrested, and for the first time since Felinda Humiston left, strangers were allowed into the National Homestead. They found an awful place more terrifying than any battlefield in Gettysburg. Evidence of mistreatment could be found everywhere. Small, emaciated children huddled in corners. There were stories of cruel punishments doled out to the children by an older youth they called Stick Boy. He would assault the children with wooden sticks, beating them black and blue for the smallest wrongs or for perhaps the matron's sadistic pleasure. One girl had been forced to balance on a desk in one position for hours under the threat of death. Children were dunked in barrels of water for minor infractions and left in the cold winter air to work and freeze. There was even evidence in the cellar, a place Carmichael maintained as a dungeon. Within the shadowy corners there, manacles and torture tools were strewn about carelessly. Children were chained to the wall and left in the darkness for punishment. For the ones she deemed especially difficult, she strung them up and stood them in large vats of water. As they grew more and more tired, their small legs would slowly give out. The children would slouch forward and were forced to keep their heads above the water for fear of being drowned in the dark. Some of the children were missing, but they were never found. Some were runaways, but there were a few who the townspeople couldn't be sure about. There were no bodies, so there was no charge of murder, which explains why Rosa Carmichael was allowed to leave the town of Gettysburg alive. By the time she was driven out, only 19 children remained on the property. The orphanage was severely in debt and closed down after 11 years of caring for the most vulnerable. Carmichael died in obscurity never to be heard from again. But for the children entrusted to her, there was no true escape from the National Homestead. Some of them were transferred to other homes. Some were adopted by local families. But still, the horror clings to the building. The National Homestead changed hands several times during the years, but it never again housed children within its walls which is for the best if the stories are to be believed. Before the building closed to the public in 2014, it wasn't unusual for people to report the sounds of children scampering through the abandoned place. Tourists would take photographs of their visit, and within the mundane celluloid, unexplained streaks of light and orbs floated next to smiling faces. 
other photos are much more detailed, much more heartbreaking. Spectral shapes of departed children cling to the legs of the living, people posing with a smile, eternally searching for the comfort they never received in life. The cruel spirit of Stick Boy remains behind to menace visitors and paranormal investigators alike. He's been known to slam doors and shove wayward explorers. And the scariest place is the cellar, which served as Carmichael's own personal dungeon. It's said that if you go down and turn off the lights, you can hear phantasmal chains softly clinking in the darkness. A foggy mist clings to the floor and shrouds a small boy who huddles in the corner. You'll see him, wild-eyed, feral, and then you'll blink and he'll be gone. Toys left behind for the spirits of the children trapped there have been known to move and activate by some unseen force. It's enough to raise the hackles on a person's neck. With stories such as these, perhaps it's better to leave the National Homestead to its ghosts in peace. Places like this one serve as an eternal reminder that when war sows its awful seeds and waters them with the blood of thousands of sacrificed lives, it's not just the combatants who suffer. Gettysburg has seen more than its fair share of tragedy in those long, feverish days. Thousands of men, gallons of blood, tons of ammunition, and enough trauma and agony to warp reality are all held within that peaceful town. It wasn't clear if Gettysburg was the place where the fate of America would be decided when it happened, but most parties knew the outcome would be significant. And it was. The victory bought with human life and limb did indeed change the world. For the rest of the war, Union troops would be bringing the fight to the Confederacy. Some historians are as bold to say that the war was won in Gettysburg, but it didn't stop the fighting. Thousands more would die before America was reconciled. Still, there are cracks in the foundation of our country that haven't healed. I wrote these words on January 26, 2021, days after the U.S. Capitol was stormed by those looking to overthrow a democratically elected government and install a ruler of their own choice. It's been difficult to write this episode because it feels like the ground is shifting beneath our feet minute by minute. The strange spirals of history are slowly growing tighter and those of us caught within them feel the pinch, the crushing pressure of our time. It occurs to me that there are people out there who think I am evil because I think a certain thing. It occurs to me that they think I think that they are evil because they think a certain thing. There are strangers who want to kill me. I don't think I've ever been hated before. There are militiamen in the woods right now cleaning rifles or running drills or organizing with other militia members because they don't want me to be a part of their country anymore. They gather up their arms and put on costumes and Hawaiian shirts. They swear ridiculous, angry oaths claiming the only true patriots are themselves. They're salivating in the darkness for the chance to kick off the big one. They're drunk on righteousness and zealous belief. 
not knowing what it is they're flirting with. Because once the fuse has been lit, there is no stopping it from exploding. The last time America divorced, at least 620,000 of us died. It's staggering. What if something like that happens again, 160 years after the fact? With our weapons, with our capacity for violence, how many ghosts will we decide to manufacture on our own soil? How much blight will we visit upon our home? What pits will we fill with corpses? What fresh homes will we set for the devil? How many of our children will suffer as we tear ourselves to pieces? Grim, I know. But you should keep it in the back of your mind. Because we're close. Can't you taste it on the air? Can't you feel it in your chest as sure as you can feel your own heart? Where do you avert the catastrophe? Where do you even start? That's the question I keep asking myself. See, you do the reading. You gather up all those scraps of truth like fall leaves. You spend hours sipping beer in the darkness, listening to screaming men in marching boots, trying to wrap your hands around the enormity of the thing. I'm not sure where to start but I know exactly where it ends. It ends in a killing field, in a small town, in a bloody picture showing us everything we've lost. Thank you for joining us on this mini-sode of The Occluded. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down these war-torn paths of American history. It would mean the world to us if you rated and reviewed the show on your podcatcher of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's okay. You can always clutch these words in a locked outhouse as you wait for a rescue that might never come. If you've ever been to the battlefields of Gettysburg or want to give me your opinion on the best type of wood to beat orphans with, write into the show at randomdrawpodcast at gmail.com. Season 2 is coming soon, and I would love to hear your spookiest stories. The Occluded is a Random Draw production, and it was written and hosted by Mark Blyle, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. He doesn't have kids, but he'd still make a better matron than Rosa Carmichael. Special thanks to my grandfather, Robert Belisle, my father, Mark Belisle, to two of my best friends, Emmett Foraker and Daniel Mann, my sister-in-law, Tracy Burton, and to all the other veterans in my life and around the country. You've sacrificed so much for us, and I'm glad you get to lay your weapons down. May none of us ever be called upon to make either ghosts or orphans while we still have days on this earth. These episodes were difficult, but I hope it helps you look past our differences and see the humanity of your neighbor. Next time on The Occluded, join us for Season 2. In the meantime, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.